You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. You are the sons of Yahweh your God. You shall not cut yourselves or make any baldness on your foreheads for the dead. For you are a people holy to Yahweh your God, and Yahweh has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. You shall not eat any abomination. These are the animals that you may eat. The ox, the sheep, the goat, the deer, the gazelle, the roebuck, the wild goat, the ibex, the antelope, and the mountain sheep. Every animal that parts the hoof and has the hoof cloven in two and chews the cud among the animals you may eat. Yet, of those that chew the cud or have the hoof cloven, you shall not eat these, the camel, the hare, and the rock badger, because they chew the cud but do not part the hoof, are unclean for you. And the pig, because it parts the hoof, but does not chew the cud, is unclean for you. Their flesh you shall not eat, and their carcasses you shall not touch. Of all that are in the waters you may eat these. Whatever has fins and scales you may eat, and whatever does not have fins and scales you shall not eat. It is unclean for you. You may eat all clean birds, but these are the ones that you shall not eat. The eagle the bearded vulture, the black vulture, the kite, the falcon of any kind, every raven of any kind, the ostrich, the nighthawk, the seagull, the hawk of any kind, the little owl and the short-eared owl, the barn owl and the tawny owl, the carrion vulture and the cormorant, the stork, the heron of any kind, the hoopoe and the bat. And all winged insects are unclean for you. They shall not be eaten. All clean winged things you may eat. You shall not eat anything that has died naturally. You may give it to the sojourner who is within your towns that he may eat it, or you may sell it to a foreigner. For you are a people holy to Yahweh your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. You shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year. And before Yahweh your God, in the place that he will choose to make his name dwell there, you shall eat the tithe of your grain, of your wine, and of your oil, and the firstborn of your herd and flock, that you may learn to fear Yahweh your God always. And if the way is too long for you, so that you are not able to carry the tithe, when Yahweh your God blesses you because the place is too far from you, which Yahweh your God chooses to set his name there, Then you shall turn it into money and bind up the money in your hand and go to the place that Yahweh your God chooses and spend the money for whatever you desire, oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink, whatever your appetite craves. And you shall eat there before Yahweh your God and rejoice, you and your household. And you shall not neglect the Levite who is within your towns, for he has no portion or inheritance with you. At the end of every three years, you shall bring out all the tithe of your produce in the same year and lay it up within your towns. And the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance with you, 
and the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, who are within your towns, shall come and eat and be filled, that Yahweh your God may bless you in all the work of your hands that you do. Tu marches, le doigt sur la détente et le canon de l'arme contre ta tempe. Convaincu d'être maître à bord jusqu'au jour où tu appuies trop fort. Je me serais pas douté que ce serait aussi rough. J'ai jamais pensé que ce serait aussi tough. Des chauds malades et des têtes qui hochent. Et nous qui avons pas plus d'argent dans nos poches. Les enfants, la femme qui veulent. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 661 of this podcast. Today is Friday, July 14th, 2023. And that was a reading from Deuteronomy chapter 14 with lots to do about food. Lots to do about food. And uh, also, too, some interesting references to wine and strong drink. Oxen and sheep, wine or strong drink, whatever your appetite craves. You can take it, you can buy it, you can eat it before Yahweh and rejoice, you and your household. Now, that's an interesting thing. And I think, <clears throat> I think if I can be myself for a moment and not try to be rude, but do try to make clear my position on such things. I do think that those Christians in America who are um, very opposed to any consumption of alcohol, any consumption of beer or wine or spirits, I think they would do well to pay more attention to passages like this one in Deuteronomy 14. Now, having grown up in a household that didn't drink with family on both sides, my mother's and my father's side that didn't drink, I am very familiar with the arguments against Christians drinking anything, any, any alcohol at all. I mean, of course, we would drink water or the occasional soda or coffee. We drink lots and lots of coffee. But <laughs> that actually was an amusing back and forth here recently with our friends Luke and Kate Bergman. My wife and myself and Luke and Kate got into a bit of playful banter about whether coffee can be classified as strong drink, where Proverbs gives us warning about the drunkard who wakes up and then immediately goes chasing after strong drink. My friend Luke was I'm sure, I'm just sure, I have to believe, pulling our leg a little bit that he thinks strong drink in that context is coffee. He's not a coffee drinker, but his wife Kate is. And then Lauren and I definitely are coffee drinkers. That's the first thing in the morning. Get a cup of coffee, sit down, wake up, read the news. And then for me, I jump into podcasting. For Lauren, she jumps into some Bible reading and planning out the day with the kids, what they're going to be doing, are they ready for it, et cetera, et cetera. But in all seriousness, there are people... There are people who believe that there is no place at all, ever, ever for the Christian to drink strong drink or for the Christian to drink wine or for the Christian to drink beer. They believe in some cases, and some of these in my own family, that wine in the Bible, whenever it appears, say, for instance, in something approaching a positive context, like, for instance, in the Gospels, when Jesus first miracle of his public ministry is turning water into wine at the wedding 
at Cana, they would say, ah, but that was grape juice. Back then it was a lot less alcoholic. It was grape juice or it was very, very little alcohol content and it was watered down. And it wasn't like today, right? It wasn't like the wine today where it is so alcoholic and we drink it straight. And it wasn't like the beers today, which it's possible to have a much higher alcohol content in because of advanced techniques of brewing and such, cultivating various things, adding certain things in, controlling the fermentation process. It wasn't like the strong drink today that is very, very strong. No, no, that's surely not, surely not what's being referenced in these passages. And this episode is not going to be all about wine and strong drink, but I would just draw your attention to both and, wine or strong drink, whatever your appetite craves here in verse 26. You have this idea of tithing grain, and if it's too much to carry over too long of a distance, wherever God says he wants you to bring your offerings to him to, if it's too much to carry, sell it and take the money. And when you bring the money to the place that Yahweh has chosen to be worshipped in, you can use that money to buy whatever you want, right? Buy whatever you want in the way of food, whatever you like to eat. For that matter, whatever you like to drink. If you like wine, well, buy some wine. You and your household enjoy some wine and some sheep and rejoice. More Christians in America need to become acquainted with passages like this and understand that just because a thing can be abused, that doesn't mean that God wants us to be prohibitive with regards to it. Now, maybe on an individual basis, if you personally cannot, in moderation, enjoy something, do abstain, right? Do abstain. Don't become a slave to anything. All things are lawful, but not all things are beneficial. Becoming a slave to anything is not beneficial unless you're a slave to Christ, but he's not a thing. He's a person. If you're going to be a slave to the Lord Jesus Christ, great. If you're going to become a slave to some food or some drink or some other thing, that's not so good. And you need to cultivate self-control and acquire the ability to say no. And if no means absolutely none, so be it. And there are cases, there are examples, say, for instance, with the Nazarites. John the Baptist is a Nazarite. Samson in the book of Judges is a Nazarite. It doesn't mean that you are holy and righteous in all of your ways, as Samson made clear. But it is to say that can be a good thing. That can be wise for you to cultivate discipline in yourself for the purpose of godliness, for the purpose of holiness. And yet, at the same time as you, on an individual basis, see the value in discipline and not becoming a slave to anything, you have to understand that there are other Christians who, if God himself has not prohibited the thing, they may indulge in moderation in those things so as to not become a slave to your good opinion of them. And I understand there's a tension there. It's not you either care or you don't care, like it's all or nothing, but there's a tension there between having a decent respect for the man that you would care what he thinks of you And on the other hand, having a fear of man where that controls you. You're a people pleaser. Your every 
word, your every deed runs the gauntlet of, but what will people think? First and foremost, consider in the context of Deuteronomy 14, God saying, spend your money on whatever you desire for food and drink. You know, context, of course, in full view here in the preceding paragraphs where God says what is clean and what is unclean in the way of animals. And that's a whole other topic. There's a lot there that I don't understand, honestly, why some of these animals are called unclean. But nevertheless, whatever God has said is clean is clean. And don't call what God has declared clean unclean. And this has a broader application. This has an application, I would say, across the board. In the New Testament, we find that a vision Peter has of a sheet descending from heaven with every manner of animal, creeping thing, bird, mammal, reptile, fish, everything, right? Everything, all the animals, all of the creatures descends from heaven and he hears a voice, the voice of God saying, arise, Peter, kill and eat. His response is, Lord, I've never eaten any unclean thing. And God's response is, do not declare unclean anything that the Lord has declared clean. And this he understands in not all that long, a time after the vision, he understands to mean God is declaring the Gentiles now as open to the good news of Jesus Christ, to the worship of Yahweh. That's what the metaphor has to do with, is people, types of people that now are being invited to be adopted in, grafted in to the family and the household of God. And so also, I would say with regards to wine and strong drink and many other things, if we say, ah, but that can be abused, and I've known people, I've had friends, I've had family, look at the statistics. When this is abused, it has health implications, it has safety implications, it leads to problems socially. I say, what you're talking about is in the macro. What I'm talking about is on an individual basis and if you make a bad argument with regards to wine and strong drink and you say because it can be abused, therefore to use it at all is to abuse it, there are so many implications, say for instance with regards to food or money for that matter or a decent respect for the opinions of mankind or tradition or food or the relations that a husband and wife alone are supposed to enjoy in the privacy of their own home. If you say all of these things can be abused, therefore we shouldn't partake of any of them. We will declare them unclean. Whoa, 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 whoa. Wait a second, right? Wait a second. Don't do that. Don't do that. What you could be in danger of if you go there is actually being ambitious to be holier and more righteous than God himself. That's a dangerous place to be. That is an arrogant, puffed-up stance to take. God opposes the proud, and that is pride. But he gives grace to the humble. And so we should have the humility to recognize we can, if we don't take care, if we're not intentional, if we're not self-controlled, we can be taken captive by good gifts that God gives because our sinful nature, the world, the flesh, the devil, tempt us into being slaves to sin. But how much better is it to respond to those temptations by 
being slaves to Christ, enjoying the good gifts that God has given when they are ours to enjoy in the way that God has given us permission to and blessed us to. That is the best response instead of just don't sin. Instead of just don't sin, how about let's do what the Lord wants us to do so that we have a replacement. We have a substitution of activity, of life. If life is just an obstacle course, what kind of life is that? Now, there are obstacles, and we have to pay attention to them. Life is not just one big party either, any more than it is one big obstacle course. But there are times and seasons, like Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes, for everything under heaven, there is a season. And if we would be wise, we study, we get knowledge, we get understanding, we ask the Lord for wisdom, we are attentive to the leading of the Holy Spirit. If we are in Christ and we have the Holy Spirit indwelling, we're sensitive to the conviction of the Holy Spirit, but also the leading and the guiding and the prompting of the Holy Spirit. We study the word so that we know what is true, so that we can test the spirits to see whether they are, in fact, of God. But enough about Deuteronomy 14 for this episode. Let's move on into some current events items. And then at the end of this episode, I want to talk about The Three Musketeers by Alexander Dumas, a book I just finished up yesterday. I enjoyed it immensely. I have some thoughts to share with you in relation to everything that we talk about as a matter of course. I want to talk about everything, and we talk quite a lot about the political trends, the social trends, the social imaginary, and there's actually quite a lot in The Three Musketeers that's worth commenting on and observing before I move on to my next book review. But first up, since we've been talking about clean and unclean foods and drink in Deuteronomy 14, let's talk about the chemicals to avoid in your shampoo and body wash. My wife sent me an article from Megan Drillinger. This one posted, published October 7th, 2020. On the website, it says fact-checked, but it doesn't say who by. Funny that it was fact-checked. Up top, I guess it doesn't say who it was fact-checked by. Down below... We see fact-checked by Maria Gifford. But here we've got some commentary on some typical hygienic items that you might buy, you might use, you might have in your own home that you should watch out for. You should be aware of some of the implications of using. Drillinger writes, while the bath products we choose are theoretically designed to clean our bodies, that doesn't necessarily mean the products themselves are clean. When bath and toiletry products are referred to as clean, it means they're created with a mindfulness for the environment and for our bodies. Clean products are free of certain chemicals called endocrine disruptors, which can do harm. Research on endocrine disruptors in products we use daily has been available for quite some time. But a new study conducted by the Silent Spring Institute confirmed that consumers who avoid products containing specific endocrine 
disruptors had significantly lower levels of the chemicals in their bodies. Quote, this study reinforces the real and immediate changes in the human body that can occur when you take safe and simple steps to prevent exposure to endocrine disruptors, end quote, said Dr. Leonardo Trasandi, a professor in the Department of Environmental Medicine at NYU Langone Health. Quote, you can see immediate levels of endocrine disruptors in days, then there are medium and long-term effects, end quote. So what are endocrine disruptors? Well, they are chemicals, as she continues in the next section, that are widely used in personal care products as well as household products. Researchers are watchful of the public's exposure as these chemicals can disrupt the body's hormones and lead to health problems like reproductive disorders, thyroid disease, asthma, and cancers. In the new study, researchers assessed the influence of different types of bath products on people's exposures. The researchers collected urine samples from 726 participants, which were analyzed for 10 common endocrine disruptors. According to the report published in the International Journal of Hygiene and Environmental Health, researchers found that 87% of participants were taking steps to avoid certain chemicals in products. When the researchers compared participants with each other, they found that people who avoided products with parabens, triclosan, and fragrances were twice as likely to be in the group with the lowest body burden for all chemicals combined. Body burden is a term often used by environmental groups to refer to the amount of chemicals a person may be exposed to or the levels of certain chemicals in the body. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, CDC, refers to looking at the amount of chemicals in a person's body as biomonitoring. Quote, this is one of those things that would be intuitively expected, end quote, said Dr. Kenneth Spaeth, medical director of Occupational and Environmental Medicine Center at Northwell Health in Great Neck, New York. Quote, it's almost going to be part of our general understanding that everyday products are contributing to our exposure, end quote. Now, I won't read the whole thing for you. I'll put a link in the description for this podcast episode. You can go and check it out. But I bring it up because it's interesting to note, as I have pointed out before, as we're going through the Pentateuch and we do find these references to clean and unclean, certain actions, behaviors, circumstances that can make someone unclean, and then how do they become clean again, or certain happenings that can cause household items or food items to become unclean. We have categories biblically for clean and unclean, and these are distinct, although related to the categories of righteousness and wickedness, or you might say wisdom and folly. So they're distinct, but there is some overlap, particularly where God gives instructions. And for the purposes of my bringing this to your attention, I just want to point out that from a purely practical standpoint, from a health and wellness standpoint, physically, we would say you care about what is clean and unclean. If somebody picks up a Big Mac off of the street and you don't know how it got there on the street, you just know that it's there, 
you are less likely to eat that Big Mac, I hope, because you're thinking to yourself, I don't know what germs this Big Mac has encountered on the street or as somebody else handled it and then they just left it here. Why did they leave it here? What's the story there? Who who would leave a Big Mac just lying in the middle of the street? That's weird. If I were you, I would not eat a Big Mac just lying in the street unless it was that or starvation. I, I just wouldn't. Now, on the other hand, if you offer me a Big Mac from McDonald's that's fresh off the grill and I've been assured that the kitchen is clean and the people who are preparing the burger are also washing their hands and they're making sure that they don't have you know, dead skin cells and hair and things like that, various fluids getting into the food before they serve it to me, then I would eat a Big Mac. In fact, I don't mind Big Macs. I wouldn't eat them every day all the time, but if you offered me one fresh off the grill at a McDonald's, I wouldn't turn it down. I would say thank you and enjoy it. I would rejoice in eating that Big Mac before the Lord. But also, too, I think we recognize if you were to make something like a Big Mac at home with only the best ingredients, that would be better. And in some sense, you could say it would be more assured that the Big Mac was clean if you had carefully selected all the best ingredients and made it yourself. Well, so also with soaps, with cleaners, this is something we should pay attention to. You know, working in oil and gas myself, there are all kinds of chemicals that can create health issues that can cause cancer or various other conditions. Some gases and chemicals can cause major injuries or even death besides just being flammable or explosive they're toxic. And so when we say they're toxic, industrial hygiene would mean you wear gloves anytime you're around them. You wear other PPE anytime you would be around them. You keep them contained and apart from you, even though they have a use, that use is not (laughs) to be ingested, not to get them on your skin and then absorb them through your skin, not to get them in your eyes or in your nose or in your ears. You don't want any of that So industrial hygiene has to do with keeping yourself protected and keeping other people protected from harmful chemicals that are likely to have a toxic quality, a poisonous quality, a negative effect on your body's ability to maintain homeostasis, to maintain good health and attention and energy. Well, how about this, right? How about the possibility that some of the things that we buy at the store carry with them chemicals that are not good for us, that are actually in those cleaners we think we're cleaning, but in actual fact, we're making ourselves sick. Now, it's not to say there aren't safeguards. It's not to say that we don't have people who check and inspect, because even this article at Healthline points that out and says, yeah, there are people who regulate, they monitor, they study, they observe, they test, and they advise. But also, there's a very high percentage of people that they were polling 
for the case of this one study that cited 87% of participants in this one study were taking steps to avoid certain chemicals in products like household cleaners, like soaps. Sometimes, maybe, just maybe, in these laws, in Deuteronomy 14, and in other business, other equivalent things in our day, maybe, just maybe, we should be taking care about certain trace things that are not what we are intending to get, but they're part of the package deal. So for instance, Deuteronomy 14, if God's saying certain animals are unclean, don't eat them, maybe just maybe something like an impact on hormones is in view. Maybe something with regards to changes that will happen to your body's ability to regulate itself or to function properly, not just immediately, but over time, maybe that is in view. Maybe God is being protective of the health of his people, but also maybe too, he's being protective of their spiritual condition here where there's something characteristic to these animals that comes through when you eat them. Maybe also too, with regards to soaps, Yes, we have people who are watching out. Yes, they are supposed to be testing, monitoring, verifying, regulating. Yes, but also ensuring that there are inspections. But maybe just maybe with some of these things that you think you're buying to clean yourself, you're actually building up unhelpful, interfering hangers-on that are going to disrupt your general well-being. It's a possibility. And this is before you even get into the particulars of some people having, say, for instance, genetic conditions. Like, for instance, my wife has a genetic mutation she inherited from, I believe, both of her parents that affects how well her body gets rid of various chemicals or toxins that build up in the body. And so now that we know that after doing some testing, we are more careful about the soaps that we use, the detergents, the cleaners that we use. But even people who don't realize that they have a particular genetic mutation, that doesn't mean that they don't have some kind of a vulnerability or that they wouldn't, just as a member of the human species, be negatively impacted by some of these things. And as we go on in talking through a few other issues of environmental hygiene, environmental concern in this episode, before we get into talking about the three musketeers, I think you'll appreciate that I'm not just a naysayer poo-pooing anybody who would be concerned about chemicals. No, working in oil and gas, I get it, right? Having a wife who has some genetic conditions, having children who we haven't tested yet to see whether they have those same genetic conditions, but they, I'm sure some of them do and are affected by these things as well. I'm sensitive to it. I have asthma. I'm sensitive to environmental effects that maybe pass unnoticed for most people. But if you're sensitive to them, boy, howdy, do you want to take care? Just because everybody else is okay, that doesn't mean you can be careless and not worry about it and carry on like everybody else would. 
But that actually brings me to my next story to share with you. This one published at Travel Fiber, written by Tyler Conahan, as presented at MSN.com. 500,000 tires found sitting off Florida coast at the bottom of the ocean. This is an odd story, but when you think about it as a failed experiment, what was well-intentioned, hey, let's create an artificial reef off the coast of Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Oh, wait, no, there are <laughs> negative effects. It's not just the positive effects that we were thinking about, but also negative effects that we weren't thinking about, unintended consequences to this kind of intervention. When you realize that smart people, well-intentioned perhaps people, but ultimately fallible and finite people do things like this today, maybe they don't do the same thing, right? Now that we know about it, now that we know that was a bad idea, let's not do that again. But maybe we're doing something else that's similar in scope, maybe even larger scale that in future decades will be looked back on like this Osborne Reef. It should give you pause before you just jump on board with whatever the experts are saying is safe, whatever they've inspected and signed off on and stamped, whatever they have permitted to be legally bought and sold or traded or used or marketed or even required, even mandated. So here's the story from Tyler Conahan. And I quote, off the coast of Fort Lauderdale, Florida, divers can find what might be the most uniquely horrifying environmental experiments we've ever created. The Osborne Reef was constructed in the 1970s and was made to be an artificial reef for nearby marine life to grow on. Scientists at the time thought that it was a good idea to try and copy the beneficial aspects of coral reefs by trying to recreate one with hundreds of thousands of old tires. Unfortunately, they must have never assumed that this would eventually become one of the biggest environmental mishaps in U.S. history. Yeah, you think? You think? Since the coral reef was built, many groups have tried tirelessly to clean the mess up. Even the U.S. military has gotten in on the cleaning attempts. However, there hasn't been much success. So where did this monstrosity come from? A local Florida nonprofit by the name of Osborne Reef decided to drop 2 million tires into the water off the Florida coast in the 1970s. The intentions were good, but the foresight was clearly off. At the time, there was plenty of buzz surrounding the project. Even the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers got on board with the project, which was under the supervision of the Navy. Most of the tires were provided by manufacturing giant Goodyear, and the project received a spiritual christening with the first tire plated with gold dropped in by the Goodyear blimp. As the years went on, a few of the tires started coming loose from one another as they were only being held together by steel clips and nylon rope. With loose tires floating everywhere, the reef was impossible for creatures to inhabit. Plus, loose tires were floating elsewhere and beginning to damage nearby reefs. So actual, like, real, true, authentic, organic reefs were being damaged by this artificial reef that wasn't even working for what they thought it was going to do. Since the early 2000s, private and public groups have put together programs to try and get rid of the many hundreds of thousands of tires from the Osborne Reef Project. One of the main companies spearheading the ocean cleanup right now is 4Ocean, a company that has made it their mission to rid Florida's coastal waters of this mess. In a recent Instagram post, the company wrote, quote, while they had good intentions, the project was ultimately a failure, end quote. Now, let's just stop right there. We'll stop right there because that's enough for us to get the big idea 
that sometimes intervention is not helpful. And it's not enough to just say this person has good intentions. It could be you think you're going to improve the environment. You think you're actually undoing the effects of man's impact on the environment, which is a mistaken notion at root, by the way, because the big idea was for us to fill the earth and subdue it. That was God's original purpose. It's not a bug. It's a feature of our being fruitful and multiplying. But apply all of the lessons learned here, maybe, to the scaled up and global effort to combat climate change. Could it just be possibly maybe that the good intentions are irrelevant? The fact that a lot of these are so-called experts and they're nonprofit, right? That one gets thrown out a lot as well. You know that they're good because they're nonprofit. They're not making any money off this, so you know it's good. As though making money is proof of bad intent, more so than not making money. Or as though, again, going back to the question of intent, as though intent is the deciding factor for whether you're going to have a good outcome. By all accounts here, there were good intentions, right? We're trying to do a good thing. But if you will, if you'll permit me to throw in some biblical categories here, if you will, the result has been an unclean coastal environment in Florida and around Florida. It's unclean. You're thinking, oh, tires. This is a place for little creatures to live just like they would in a real reef, and maybe things will grow as other creatures come into these tires and live in them like they would a reef. Maybe eventually over time, this will become a real reef. And this is like planting a seed, right? Tires are reef seeds, I guess, if you put them in the water. It's not relevant whether these were good intentions or bad intentions to the fact that this has had a bad outcome. And you can't posthumously excuse all such efforts just because the people had good intentions. I mean, you can say if they had bad intentions, well, then we would be really upset with them. But Biblically, we also have categories for intentional sin and unintentional sin. Not to say dropping a whole bunch of tires in the ocean was a sin per se, because that would be a category confusion. But it is to say intentional, if somebody were to even call this a sin, intentional sin is to be distinguished from unintentional sin, and yet it's still sin, right? It's still a major error. It's still a major mistake. And my point in bringing this up is to say with regards to environmental policy, so-called environmental justice, economic justice, as some people call it, or social justice, as some people call it, good intentions aren't enough. If the policies or the projects or the programs have bad effects and people try to warn you about those bad effects on the front end, and they try to say, whoa, 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 wait, 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 stop. This is going to lead to X, Y, and Z problems that are much weightier than the supposed benefits, which aren't even guaranteed. If people try to tell you that kind of stuff in the real time, in the present, you should probably listen. You should probably hear them out so that you don't end up like the Osborne Reef people. But are people listening? There's another question. If the test is intentions, if that's the test, and that's all a lot of people care about, or they want to have the appearance of having good intentions, watch out, right? 
That's where it gets really dangerous is not just you have some people with good intentions who are stubborn and willful and won't listen to caution, but you also have people who just want to look like they have good intentions and they're virtue signaling, but it's disingenuous. And by golly, if they are coerced or they're bribed with promises of reward or punishment on the basis of whether they help make these projects happen, make these programs and these schemes a reality, well, maybe, maybe, just maybe, this Osborne Reef business looks like small potatoes as they have more and more capacity to enact their visions, to impose their visions on a whole planet's worth of people and a whole planet's worth of environment for that matter. I mean, how would it be if somebody came along today and said, we want to do the Osborne Reef thing, but we're going to do it over here. We're going to do it off the coast of Hawaii, for instance. And how would it be if somebody was like, hey, this has been tried and it was a disaster and we still haven't cleaned it up. It's still making a mess off the coast of Florida. Don't do this thing. And how would it be if somebody said that and the response was, no, no, no. The reason it didn't work last time is because we didn't have enough tires, right? (laughs) The reason it didn't work before is because It was too small of an area. We just need to do it over a larger area. How about all around the whole coast of all the Hawaiian islands? Then it'll work. Trust us. And you're like, no, right? No. If you're doing the same thing again and expecting different results, you're a crazy person. If doing the same thing that's crazy and you're threatening to destroy people who criticize, object, try to stop you, well, then maybe you're not just crazy. Maybe you're a bad person. Maybe you're a villain. And oh, by the way, that's before we even get into determining whether they really do have good intentions or not, because some people can pretend that they're on board with the project and they have good intentions just because they're afraid. Other people can be bribed into it. Other people can pretend they have good intentions like Machiavelli just to get power, just to get wealth for themselves. And they don't care what comes after them. They don't care who else is affected as long as they are rich and powerful at the end of the day, and they stay rich and powerful at the end of the day, it worked, right? It worked. That was the big idea. Scale up so-called good-intentioned, well-intentioned projects and programs and start offering the incentive of being able to commandeer anything and everything from whoever you want in the interest of the greater good. You will attract the most villainous, vile, tyrannical, unscrupulous, dishonest people to not just join the project, but to lead it. And they will ruthlessly eliminate anybody who would try and call them out for it with the claim that they're the only ones who really care about whether this project gets done. Watch out, right? This has happened again and again throughout history, and it's happening today with regards to climate change and so many other things. But in a related piece of current events, news, I would draw your attention to a story by Eric Zerkel over at CNN and an embedded video clip. I'll play the audio for you. This will be cut one for this episode of a issue, a problem, a concern with Florida. Again, going back to Florida and their coral reefs and major heat, so-called unprecedented ocean heat around the Florida coast. Here it is. 
Cut one, take a listen. Take us through what you saw. Just give us a description of what you saw and what it should have looked like, but did not. Thank you so much, Brianna, for having me speak about this important topic today. So right now we are anticipating pretty severe bleaching that could start to really crop up uh, several weeks to a month plus from now. Right now, the waters are anomalously high for this time of year. So we are starting to see those hallmark telltale signs of bleaching where corals start to lose their color. Um, they go from vibrant browns and greens to looking like they are bleaching out. And soon again, we do anticipating seeing really stark white corals even deep down these reefs off the coast. So when they are bleached like that, are they dead? Are they dying? What happens? And what's the domino effect of that? So once a coral starts to experience heat stress that's driven by these really high air and water temperatures that we're seeing now, corals can start to lose their symbiotic algae that inhabits their tissue. It provides them with most of their food. So we start to see that paling, that color loss, and if conditions don't improve within a week or so, that coral can certainly end up dying. And when we have many corals throughout the reef that are bleaching, that are dying, there is definitely an ecological cascade, a domino effect, um, where all the organisms that depend on healthy coral reefs will see effects of that as well. And, and so what are those effects? What are the effects to other marine life? And how much time does it take to rebound, if you can, from these effects? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so corals, the ones that we do see bleaching, are the ones that make up the structural framework, all the habitat, the nooks and crannies, the crevices. And if those corals die, eventually they'll start to disintegrate. And so we lose that physical habitat that actually more than 25% of all of the world's marine species depend on coral habitat at some point in time. This recovery period is really dependent on if environmental conditions approve, if improve, um, or if there are other stressors like hurricanes that can come through and cause further physical damage. Okay, so here we are. <laughs> here we are. Back to Florida's reefs again. And you have scientists worried that ocean heat is destroying the reefs, the natural reefs off the coast. And... My big question is, what is the call to action, right? What is the call to action with regards to this business? Well, for one thing, we're told ocean warming is only getting worse. Bleaching events are getting more frequent. So it's really an existential crisis for coral reefs as we know them. That is to say, this is supposed to be of a piece with calls to combat climate change generally. And let me say a couple of things with regards to these kinds of stories being presented with the imperative that you have to surrender your political power and your economic interests and your personal liberties to either your national government or international treaties and the bodies that enforce them. One, the Osborne Reef should teach us that human intervention, again, for so-called good intentions, does not guarantee even a good outcome, much less a neutral impact. The impact of the Osborne Reef project was a negative. 
it was a very bad idea. <laughs> it was a bad idea and it did no good, but it did harm. And so they shouldn't have done it, right? They shouldn't have done it. So for one thing, the call to action, if it's implied here that you need to stay on the climate change hysteria bandwagon, that doesn't bear out. That doesn't bear out. For another thing, is it possible that maybe just maybe part of this ocean heat problem off of Florida's coasts could be related to the dumping of hundreds of thousands, millions even, of tires five decades ago? Could it be that the dumping of all those tires actually has had an unclean effect that is contributing to this current issue? They thought 50 years ago that they were doing some great deal of good, and maybe, just maybe, this is one of the effects. Now, I've looked it up. How long does it take for rubber to biodegrade in water, for instance? And the answer is anywhere from 10 years to thousands of years, which is to say it really depends. It depends on what kind of an environment you've got the tires in, what the rubber is made out of. It really depends but even if you just have some trace things eking out, biodegrading, maybe the whole thing isn't just disintegrating over the course of 50 years, but even if it's just trace amounts of this or that, how do you know, right? How do you know that the last big ecological intervention you tried in this area 50 years ago isn't creating this new imperative, this new call to action? And if so, what makes you so sure that the next intervention, whatever that's going to be, like say, for instance, banning all internal combustion engine vehicles or the burning of fossil fuels to generate electricity, how do you know that that next initiative is going to produce any benefit to the environment whatsoever? And how do you know that that next intervention or current intervention, because it's ongoing with the Green New Deal type initiatives, Paris Climate Accords type initiatives, how do you know that the current initiative, the current project, the current scheme isn't going to do great damage, great harm to the environment like the Osborne Reef did. It's something to think about, just like it's something to think about when you buy soap, but the soap might have some carryover qualities and components and chemicals that actually make you sick, that are unclean, just like household cleaners you might buy to clean one type of problem, one type of contaminant from your home and your environment actually carry with them other contaminants, other contaminants that are as bad or worse compared to what you were trying to get rid of. Just like that is true on an individual and personal basis at the level of the home. So also when you scale up to a major ecological region of the country or of the world or the whole world itself, it could be what you're being baited with is good intentions and you'd better get with the program or else. And if you get with the program, we'll, we'll reward you. We will incentivize that. You might be baited to even just keep quiet because, well, I don't know, it's complicated, right? These are very smart people. Let's just trust them to figure it out. You might be getting baited with a whole lot of fallacious nonsense that has no bearing whatsoever to the bottom line, which is what are you wanting to do about it? What are you wanting to do about this coral reef crisis, so-called? If you describe the waters off of Florida as a hot tub, 
what are you presenting in the way of a solution? Or is the big idea not to present a solution, but just to terrify people so that they're desperate for answers. They're desperate for somebody to come along and say, oh, yes, yes, please, right, please, save us, help us, help us. I think it's the latter, quite honestly. And I think also, as a matter of fact, Neil Postman and his How to Watch TV News would affirm that. I think stories like this, they can be true. It can be concerning. We should figure out what we can do, by all means. But let's not assume that the so-called experts or the so-called nonprofits, which very often, very, very often, have people who are very concerned with profit funding them, and typically not for no reason, we should not just take it for granted that they're going to have it all figured out and we should surrender, raise the white flag while they do, particularly if they're not presenting solutions. If they just say, well, we're the solution because we're the smartest people in the room, watch out, watch out, watch out. In other news from the AP, the Associated Press, Frank Jordan's climate talks chief, who also heads oil company, says world must attack all emissions everywhere. Designated UN Conference President Sultan Al-Jaber attends the UN Climate Change Conference in Bonn, Germany, Thursday, June 8th, 2023. The head of this year's UN Climate Talks called Thursday, July 13th, 2023 for governments and businesses to tackle global warming by reducing greenhouse gas emissions in all regions and sectors if they want to stop the planet from passing a key temperature limit agreed more than seven years ago. Now, if you can do the quick math, it being your... 2023, seven years ago, was 2016. More than seven years ago means before 2016. Before 2016, that would be under Barack Obama's administration here in the US. And what we're really talking about is that program, that scheme to combat climate change globally being of a piece with so-called environmental justice, which the Biden administration has claimed is they're all of government, all hands on deck, all departments focus on that key top priority. Sultan Al-Jaber heading up this conference, being also the head of an oil company, being a Middle Easterner, is a curious juxtaposition. It's a curious business that the United Arab Emirates, which profits immensely off of oil and gas, would be telling the rest of the world, we need to attack greenhouse gas emissions, carbon emissions, everywhere we find them, all over the world. It's a curious look that he would head an oil and gas company in the UAE and also be telling the rest of the world, hey, listen, we made an agreement over seven years ago, which is to say before Donald Trump in the US, we made an agreement and you guys need to abide by that agreement because we're just about to reach a temperature threshold. Now, if that temperature threshold was arbitrary, if it was made up, if it was the product of junk in, junk out, garbage in, garbage out, computer models and political ambitions, and <laughs> greed for unjust gain, and anti-competitive business practices. You know, if it were 
an arbitrary number thrown out there and then presented to the public by scientists in white lab coats who were being funded by people who want the science to say a certain thing because that suits their political and economic interests. There's a certain uncleanness to the whole business, particularly when you consider how much harm is done to poor people all over the world when you say, we're just going to throttle back all use of fossil fuels globally. It's the most cheap and abundant, easily accessible, easily convertible energy source in the world. Fossil fuels are, with the exception of nuclear. If you can get nuclear, great. If you can maintain that, great. But they don't like that either because actually at root, as Alex Epstein points out in The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels, cheap and abundant, even free electricity and transportation energy otherwise, unless the two are the same and it's all electric vehicles, that is problematic because it's going to mean more people doing more things, having more environmental impact. They aren't interested first and foremost or last, first and last, with eliminating carbon emissions. They're interested in decreasing the footprint of man generally, not just the carbon footprint, but the footprint of man generally on the planet. Insofar as these are some of the wealthiest, most powerful men in the world who gather together and they shake hands on eliminating the most abundant forms of energy, who's hurt the most? Not them. That's why they don't look all that concerned. That's why they don't look worried, but they are very amped up because they stand to inherit the world as they see it over and against the riffraff who they would like to clear out, as has been the case for a long, long time when very wealthy people have colonial aspirations. In a sense, this is just colonialism revisited because you have the pandering and condescending attitude towards people in developing countries or people within their own countries who are lower and middle class, but who obstruct a clear view of the mountains or access to the waterfronts, unfettered, undisturbed. They don't like competing for time, attention, resources with the riffraff. And they don't like the idea that the riffraff would talk back and say, hey, wait a second, this doesn't add up. This is very bad for us and our families. These very wealthy, powerful people are not first and foremost interested in the categories of clean and unclean with regards to environmental impact. I'm convinced they're first and foremost interested in the categories of clean and unclean people as they see it. And of course, they're in the clean category. In a very social Darwinist mindset, they are the econs. They are the rational decision makers. How do they know? They're making all the decisions. But it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy that other people aren't going to have the capacity to make decisions for themselves when you withhold information that's pertinent and when you punish them anytime they try to make an independent choice. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's cruel and it's abusive when you then say decades on, well, you guys clearly can't handle this. Yeah, but you guys have funded educational initiatives that were designed off of the Prussian model, patterned after the Prussian model in many cases, you've enacted media regulations and norms 
predicated on you getting to control the narrative. And then when people are like, I think something's up, I think this is not true. You say, oh, they're conspiracy theorists. These people, they don't know how to make these decisions. They don't know how to think through these things. They don't know how to do what's best. We do. And even where maybe that's coming from a supposedly good-intentioned, well-intentioned place, there's an unclean quality to it because it's not loving their neighbor as they love themselves. To destroy the capacity to feed oneself, clothe oneself, house oneself, raise one's own children in the fear and instruction of the Lord, get married, stay married, live a quiet life working with your hands, minding your own affairs like you have your own affairs. It's not loving your neighbor as you love yourself because you would never, you folks, you very wealthy, very well-connected sultans and scientists, you would never tolerate somebody micromanaging and engineering all of your decisions, all of your choices, the way that you have set out to, you have committed to with the common people of the world. You would never tolerate it. And we shouldn't tolerate it either, actually, as a matter of fact. Next up, though, Joel Abbott has a delightful little video clip that he embedded in a tweet from David Vance over at Not The Bee. Spanish climate minister flies on private jet to eco-conference, gets out of limo 100 yards before venue to ride bike for the cameras. You can't make this up, right? You can't make this up. According to Bard, Teresa Ribera used a private jet 17 times in 2022 at a cost of 170,000 euros. She used the jet to travel to a variety of destinations, including Brussels, Paris, and New York. In 2023, Ribera has used a private jet 16 times at a cost of 160,000 euros. She has used the jet to travel to a variety of destinations, including Lisbon, Berlin, and Rome. The cost total of Ribera's use of private jets in 2022 and 2023 is 330,000 euros. This is a significant amount of money, and it has led to renewed calls for Ribera to stop using private jets. So what does she do? What does she do? She flies in, takes the limo until she's 100 meters from the gathering place. She gets out, grabs a bicycle, and she bikes the rest of the way while the security cars follow her. What are they doing? Are they emitting any less carbon while they're following her as she rides on the bike? No. No, they're not. In fact, they're probably emitting even more because they're going to go slower behind her bicycle. But if it looks like she is abiding by what she's trying to impose on the common people of the world, that's all she cares about. Because this is not actually supposed to be for everybody. It's only supposed to be for the common people Meanwhile, those who think of themselves as more like gods than like men, they will carry on, they will continue on using the very best technologies, living in the largest, most expensive homes, having multiple, multiple homes all over the world, traveling to and from them as they please, as they want to, eating the best foods, drinking the best wines, and congratulating themselves and one another for supposedly saving the planet, not saving the planet for you and me and our descendants after us, but saving the planet 
from us as they see it. You have to understand that is their view. That is their attitude. We are the riffraff. They know best. Not just that they have authority, but they want all authority. You know, I was watching this excellent 16-minute and some change podcast episode that was sent to me by my friend, Marcus Lanthus, of a couple of pastors from some local churches in the area. Brave Church, I guess, has a number of campuses in the area. But these pastors were sitting down to talk about how political should pastors get. And one of the things they discussed and they pointed out is right now, politically in the U.S. and around the world, you have folks who are very ambitious to replace the idea that there are three distinct spheres of authority. Yes, one of those spheres is your civil government. But after that, you would say, as a Christian, if you have sound biblical political theology, you would say the church also has authority. And the church has authority in ways that the civil authorities do not have authority. But then apart from the church and the state, the family, the home has a sphere of authority. The father, the husband has a sphere of authority that is distinct from that of the local church, that of the local government in a civil sense. It's a very typical, traditional, conventional, orthodox view that Christians hold that there are three distinct spheres of authority. And while they should reinforce and support each other, they shouldn't intrude on one another's purviews. Maybe at times there have to be negotiations because there's a question of, does this belong in that category? Does this belong in that other category, this other category? But what you have right now, as these pastors were discussing with Brave Church, you have people who are ambitious to replace the idea that there are three separate and distinct spheres of authority with the idea that there is one sphere. And that one sphere is the state. And insofar as this is a globalist ambition, that one state is a one-world government that will not regard you as a parent as having authority over your children, you as a man having authority over your household. This scheme will not respect pastors, for instance, elders, for instance, as having authority over their local church, their congregations. No, no. The state must control, monitor, enforce, regulate, tax, dictate all. Why? Because supposedly there's an existential crisis called climate change that we all have to work together to combat. And when you put it that way, which I think is entirely correct, all my studies lead me to the same conclusion. If you put it in those terms, it's not an option for Christians, laymen or clergy to be silent and to sit these things out. You can say persecution is coming. And I say, <clears throat> if it's not already here, then maybe you should be speaking up now. And if you say, well, I'm afraid to speak out right now, then I say, it's probably already here, actually. The persecution is already here. And so then should you be calling for a stop to the persecution. If it's sinful for these men and these women to persecute the saints, for instance, or even to just terrorize, oppress, torment your neighbors who aren't Christians, 
if it's sin, shouldn't we be calling for those involved to repent of their sins? Shouldn't we be warning those who might be tempted to participate, to not, to turn away from evil? Yes. Yeah, very clearly, yes. So put simply, I think, (laughs) I believe, this Spanish minister should be removed. And anybody like her, oh, by the way, Mayor Pete Buttigieg has done a similar thing. Anybody like this Spanish minister or our Secretary of Transportation should be removed from office. Anybody who's going to these big climate change powwows should be removed from positions of authority in our government, removed from positions of authority in our corporations and in our communities. They should not be allowed to participate in these virtue signaling facades. The play acting, the theater should not be tolerated. We shouldn't empower these kinds of people. We should not be affirming and endorsing them. And we definitely should not be silent as they talk openly of what they intend to take from us next. Because at root, if this is sin, we need to call for repentance of it. If it's sin, we need to not participate in it. If it's sin, even if we can't stop it, we should at least be able to go on record as having warned all around us as to the effects, as to the nature of it, and as to the irrelevance of the so-called good intentions animating it. Last but not least, though, let's talk about something a little lighter and also a little bit farther removed from our current troubles with the climate change totalitarians. Let's talk about Alexander Dumas and his novel, The Three Musketeers. Goodreads.com tells me it was first published March 1st, 1844, and the publisher's summary reads as follows. Alexandra Dumas's most famous tale and possibly the most famous historical novel of all time in a handsome hardcover volume. I didn't read it on hardcover, by the way. I listened to it on Audible, and it was great. It was great. I'll put a link in the description for this podcast episode to the version that I listened to. Very well told, very well read. Continuing at Goodreads, though. This swashbuckling epic of chivalry, honor, and daring do set in France during the 1620s is richly populated with romantic heroes, unattainable heroines, kings, queens, cavaliers, and criminals in a whirl of adventure, espionage, conspiracy, murder, vengeance, love, scandal, and suspense. Dumas transforms minor historical figures into larger-than-life characters, the Comte d'Artagnan, an impetuous young man in pursuit of glory, the beguilingly evil seductress Milady, the powerful and devious Cardinal Richelieu, the weak King Louis Thirteenth, and his unhappy queen, and of course the three musketeers themselves, Athos, Porthos, and Aramis, whose motto, all for one, one for all, has come to epitomize devoted friendship. With a plot that delivers stolen diamonds, masked bulls, purloined letters, and of course, great bouts of swords play, The Three Musketeers is eternally entertaining. Now, just a little bit about Dumas. Alexandre Dumas, French for father, by the way, akin to Signor in English, Perry, 
Born Dumas Davy de la Pelleterie was a French writer best known for his numerous historical novels of high adventure, which have made him one of the most widely read French authors in the world. Many of his novels, including The Count of Monte Cristo, The Three Musketeers, The Man in the Iron Mask, and The Vicomte de Bregolon, were serialized. Dumas also wrote plays and magazine articles and was a prolific correspondent. Dumas was of Haitian descent and mixed race. His father, General Thomas Alexandre Dumas David de la Paleterie, was born in the French colony of Saint Domingue, present day Haiti, to Alexandre Antoine David de la Pelaterie, a French nobleman, and Marie Cassette Dumas, a black slave. At age 14, Thomas Alexandre was taken by his father to France, where he was educated in a military academy and entered the military for what became an illustrious career. Dumas's father and his aristocratic rank helped young Alexandre Dumas acquire work with Louis-Philippe, Duke of Orléans. Then, as a writer, finding early success, he became one of the leading authors of the French Romantic movement in Paris. So, regarding The Three Musketeers, which I gave five stars. I give this novel five out of five stars. I thought it was very well written, very well constructed, very well paced, Great dialogue, great characters, great flow from one event to the next, a good mix of action and also intrigue, and yes, suspense, and yes, violence and sex, both. I found this novel to be rather riveting, very fascinating. I couldn't put it down. But I perhaps possibly will comment on some things differently because of what I typically am thinking about and engaged on. For starters, <laughs> it should go without saying, Cardinal Richelieu being the principal villain of the story with a honorable mention or dishonorable mention, as the case may be, for Milady, notwithstanding, Cardinal Richelieu is a cardinal so he occupies this high office in the Roman Catholic Church in France, and he is the mastermind. He is the bad guy. He's the bad guy of the story who is plotting and scheming, and you find out not just wanting to have all of the political power of the king, but also actually, if you can believe it, lusting after the king's wife, the queen. And being jealous, actually, as it turns out, sorry, spoiler alert, being jealous of the Duke of Buckingham, who is this English figure making war on France, all because the Duke of Buckingham wants to take the queen for himself. He's in love with her and wants to prove his love for her by making war on France. And however many men die, the contest between England and France that is happening all the while behind the scenes and then sometimes at the foreground of the Three Musketeers is really a contest between two men who are not the queen's husbands. They are not the king she is married to, both wanting the queen for themselves. And what's curious about that is you actually have something of a 
confusion of the three spheres just right here in this book. You have, in the case of the cardinal, this ecclesiastical authority who flexes his authority in the church to threaten or cajole or intimidate others. And he's very smart, but he's not a man of God. He's just wearing the clothes. He's just dressed up like one, really. And he has the title and he has the position, but he's a schemer. He's a villain. He's a mastermind. He's an evil genius trying to get what any other man who would not be in a position of authority in the church was trying to get. He's not about the gospel. He is about himself. He's about promoting himself and destroying his enemies, just like anyone else would, without any relation to the gospel, without any relationship to Christ. And yet he's using that sphere of church authority to accomplish his ends. You can say, oh, he claims good intentions, but they're a cover, right? This is a very Machiavellian authority figure in the church in France. He's very Machiavellian, pretending at virtue all the while, maintaining a free hand to do whatever it takes to get and maintain power and wealth for himself behind the scenes. Then at the same time, you've got the Duke of Buckingham, who doesn't care how many men he sends to their deaths of his own country, how many of England's young men he sends to their deaths, because all he really cares about is this queen who is not his, and proving his love and devotion to her in a very romantic way all the while. (laughs) The trouble is, he is abusing his civil authority. He's perhaps cloaking his personal ambitions, his personal interests, his own sinful desires in talk of doing what's best for England. But really, and he even admits this in the book, really what it comes down to is he wants her. And he thinks this is part of how he can get her, even though she belongs to another man. He's an aspiring adulterer, abusing the authority of the state to accomplish his own personal ambitions, his own personal desires, his own sinful desire in this case. And then lastly, you have the king. You have this person in King Louis XIII, who is, yes, a civil authority, the civil authority par excellence in terms of title, in terms of position over France, but he's not really in charge, not really truly. I mean, he is, but he isn't. And so there's this awkward tension between him and the cardinal, and it's like, who is actually ruling the kingdom? Is it the cardinal or is it the king? Who's actually supposed to be wielding authority here? Officially, the answer is the king, but then behind the scenes, everybody kind of realizes that it's a toss-up in many situations. And it really depends on who brings more of their foot soldiers to a particular engagement, typically behind the scenes, because there's a lot of plotting and scheming and maneuvering. There's a lot of intrigue. There's a lot of deceit and sleight of hand and dishonesty. There's a lot of selfish ambition and vain conceit. And the king doesn't have a good handle on it, but he looks the part apparently. He dresses the part apparently. He has the title. He has the palace. 
He has some servants, yes. But all of that is somewhat secondary, actually, to the fact that he's a husband, right? He's a husband who has a wife. Some other man, no, I'm sorry, two other men are willing to make war between England and France in order to take from him, or so they think. King Louis XIII is a husband who the two other leading authority figures in the story want to interrupt. And that's the macro, right? That's the macro world that the three musketeers are operating within. A title here, a title there, a title this other place, claims of pursuing national security interests or the interests of the gospel or claims of fidelity here and there, all the while there are two reasons any man does what he does. The reason he gives you and the real reason, as my grandpa used to quote John Pierpont Morgan. And so there's dishonesty all over. There's lying. There are people who pretend at virtue, and maybe they pretend to be serving crown or country or church or Christ himself, but they're really doing what? They're serving themselves. They serve themselves and their own interests, chiefly. And they do this sometimes by ordering assassinations, sometimes by spying, sometimes by trying to sabotage and set others up who are their rivals. They do this sometimes by arranging for secret rendezvous with other men's wives and courting other men's wives. And within that context, and sometimes all mixed up in that context, as a matter of fact, you have D'Artagnan, Athos, Porthos, and Aramis, who, despite their faults, which are apparent and presented truthfully by Alexander Dumas, despite their real faults, their personal failings or vulnerabilities or vices, they at least are honest men with each other and with those they know they can trust, who they really are actually serving. So when they are serving the king, they are actually really serving the king. And sometimes they deliberate among themselves, which would be better for us to do. And they grapple with some certain moral dilemmas. What would be in the best interest of the king or the kingdom in this case or that case? And all the while, they're also honest with each other about who is doing what. Who is actually up to no good and how do we stop them because we have to fulfill our oath? And no matter whether you agree that the king deserves such loyalty on the part of these men, they must stay loyal to him. And secondarily, there is an oath encapsulated in their motto, all for one and one for all. And they don't mean all for one like the whole planet's worth of people. They mean all for one like we four, three at the start, Athos, Porthos, and Aramis, later four, as D'Artagnan joins them. He's offended all three in turn in very short order near the beginning of the book. He has duels back-to-back arranged with all three and then figures out a way to actually win them over, assuage their wrath at having been insulted because dueling was a thing back then. Honor, at least publicly, was a very 
very important thing. So important, in fact, you could kill a man for dishonoring you, for disrespecting you, particularly in public. And that was regarded as fair and according to the rules. These four don't just have a commitment to their king, who they serve, to the king's musketeers they belong to. They have a commitment to one another. And that right there, that friendship, that I am for you and you are for me and we are for our esprit de corps, being uncompromised, come what may, death before dishonor of that kind that we would ever betray one another or abandon one another. That is the heroism of the three musketeers, in my opinion, because you have examples in these other spheres of men at the highest levels of achievement in their respective spheres, faithless except to their own interests, their own satisfaction, their own security, their own lusts, their own ambitions. And then you have these four. You have these four whose ambition is to be loyal friends, to be loyal servants to him who they have pledged themselves to. Now, that would be enough, right? That would be enough, but there's more. And part of what's more here, I want to explain after I read for you some of what is in the Wikipedia entry for the Three Musketeers. Starting from the top, the Three Musketeers, French, Les Trois Musqueteurs, is a French historical adventure novel written in 1844 by French author Alexandre Dumas. As with some of his other works, he wrote it in collaboration with ghostwriter Auguste Maquet. It is in the swashbuckler genre, which has heroic chivalrous swordsmen who fight for justice. Set between 1625 and 1628, it recounts the adventures of a young man named D'Artagnan, a character based on Charles de Bat's Castlemore d'Artagnan, after he leaves home to travel to Paris, hoping to join the Musketeers of the Guard. Although D'Artagnan is not able to join this elite corps immediately, he is befriended by three of the most formidable Musketeers of the age, Athos, Porthos, and Aramis, the three Musketeers, or the three inseparables, and becomes involved in affairs of state and at court. The Three Musketeers is primarily a historical and adventure novel. However, Dumas frequently portrays various injustices, abuses, and absurdities of the Ancien Regime, giving the novel an additional political significance at the time of its publication, a time when the debate in France between Republicans and monarchists was still fierce. The story was first serialized from March to July 1844 during the July monarchy, four years before the French Revolution of 1848, established the Second Republic. The story of D'Artagnan is continued in 20 years after and the Vicomte of Bragelon 10 years later. Now, I read that for you. Now, I want you to hear me when I say what I am about to say. One, consider 1844. When this was initially published, it was a mere 13 years after the travels of Alexis de Tocqueville, in the United States of America, which resulted in his book, his great, great book, Democracy in America, which, oh, by the way, is in part a nod to and written with 
knowledge of the work of Edmund Burke, the father of conservative political philosophy. But this is 13 years after, and it seems to me it could be in some measure influenced by. Not necessarily that The Three Musketeers is written to promote the ideas of Alexis de Tocqueville, but rather the same kinds of questions and concerns that are animating Alexis de Tocqueville as he goes across the pond to check in on how the Americans are doing might be finding expression in The Three Musketeers. Let me just add as well that insofar as you have the big push for the French Revolution in the first place, having been to do away with the corruption of the Roman Catholic Church and the corruption of the aristocracy and the French monarchy and how the two were so intermeshed, the revolutionaries wanted to sweep both and away and implement new Republican government, democracy, but in a distinctly anti-clerical way, anti-aristocratic way, liberté, egalité, fraternité. You have these four friends representing, in some sense, the last of those, fraternité, brotherhood. But you also have, in some sense, a recognition that the top-down approach, the intrigues, the do-what-you-will behind the scenes, all the while claiming good intentions. You have perhaps possibly a critique of how the French Revolution was expressing itself. You have possibly a affirmation of the small-scale solution to the corruption that happens at the highest levels all too often when there is vying for dominance between the three spheres instead of a appropriate respect for who is over what, who is supposed to be minding the store with regards to which components of a well-ordered functioning community, country, life. In short, I think The Three Musketeers highlights and underscores the potential for uncleanness of the worst varieties, the worst forms, even in the midst of what is purported to be the cleansing agent. As in, the cardinal is supposed to be this person who brings absolution and brings resolution in the affairs of God and man, where man is supposed to be reconciled to God through the gospel This cardinal is supposed to be the one who oversees that happening, that being done in order in France. And yet his hands are not clean. And that's not actually even at the foremost of his attentions anywhere. It comes up in vague references here and there throughout, but it's a cover. Again, it's Machiavellian. It's pretend. It's a veneer. It's a facade. It's a mask he wears. So also, the king is supposed to be, in some measure, a cleansing agent. The civil authority, Romans 13 tells us, is a minister of God as well to reward those who do good, to punish those who do evil. The king's justice 
is supposed to mean something. These men are entrusted with carrying out the king's justice, the king's decrees, the king's will, protecting the king, advancing the interests of the king. That's supposed to be of a piece with justice and rewarding those who do good and punishing those who do evil. But you have to take care because sometimes those who do evil are themselves in positions of authority as well. And then what? Then you're in a pickle, perhaps, possibly. And yet the resolution is loyalty at the individual level, not necessarily at the highest levels, but at the individual interpersonal level. But then again, What's lost, what's missing here is there is no good example of marriage. There is no good example of the family. Where's the family (laughs) in the three musketeers? Every instance of love is extramarital. Every instance of romance is, it seems, either adulterous or it's some kind of fornication or it's infatuation with someone on the basis of one of those two. But it's all flowery and chivalrous and romantic, and it's not committed. You might say it can't be committed to all that because affairs of state have to be attended to. And then, oh, by the way, it's not their first priority, whether the French Protestants, the Huguenots, they're making war on, are actually heretics. It's not their place to decide, but if they've been told they're heretics, then that's what it is. If the Protestants across the English Channel are or are not also Christians, well, that's not first and foremost the interest or purview of these men, although one of them studies theology and pays close attention to such things. At one point, they cynically remark about how the French Huguenots want to have their services in a common tongue while they maintain those services need to be held in Latin, and so now they fight. And in some sense, that's an extension of this whole dueling culture, right? Or it's all wrapped up in the same. Dishonor. Don't you disrespect me in public. Don't you bump into me in public or else it'll be pistols at dawn. Or we're going to cross swords and I'll kill you without a second thought, except how my winning the duel will spread my fame and no one except your close friends and family will think the less of me. In fact, they'll probably think all the more. They'll think I am in the right because I won. How would I have won if I'm not in the right? Unless I was actually a traitor to the church or the crown. In some sense, you get this picture of what was going on, what was all amiss and awry in the wars of religion in Europe that helped to motivate the French Revolution to be anti-clerical and to throw off even the pretense of Christian faith and to be hostile towards the same, you get something of a picture of why cynicism might be the end result when there's killing and being killed for what? Because the Cardinal and the Duke of Buckingham both want the king's wife And neither of those men have any right to claim her. But then the king himself is not a loving husband. He's not kind. He's not attentive. She's just a feather in the cap as far as he's concerned. And she'd better wear 
those diamond studs that he bought her and they had better all be there and none of them given as a sign of love, a proof of love for the Duke of Buckingham when she shows up to the party. In some sense, the queen is the country. She is an analogy for everybody else being fought over, being plotted and schemed over. Assassinations and duels and intrigues and spying, cloak and dagger, battles even. For what? To control the people. And insofar as the people are real people with their own interests, they're just fodder. They're just pawns in the games of the powerful and the authoritative, those who want what they want, and they will claim they're pursuing the interests of the church or the state as convenient, as suits the occasion. And really, in a certain sense, the only ones who have clean hands, so to speak, are these musketeers. In the midst of all that, at least they're committed to one another. At least they're committed to having one another's backs, getting to the bottom of it, being honest, being truthful. Now, that doesn't mean that everything that they do along the way, everything that they say is honestly good, but it's at least honest. They are too cavalier. If you'll pardon my using that term in relation to they're too nonchalant at times about what they do and how they do it and why they do it, but at least they look out for each other. There's at least that, and that's something. And in some sense, they are brothers, they are family because they stick close to one another like brothers. But now let's come back to the present and let's talk about this climate change business and let's talk about chemicals that show up in your soaps or in your food or in your drink and what is clean and what is unclean. And let's ask the question, what do we miss? What do we lose out on? What is the tragic end of our country's story, our family's story, our church's story, if we are just pawns and we are not committed to anything except for our own ambitions, our own pursuits, our own interests, irrespective loyalty to our duty, our responsibility, starting with the family. What is the tragic end to our story? And also, who do we potentially empower if we don't require genuineness, we don't require truthfulness, we don't require sincerity, we don't require clean hands of those who serve at the highest levels? That's critically important to figure out if we're going to do anything, if we're going to say anything, especially if it's risky business to do so or to say so. Now, the Ancien Regime, also known as the Old Regime, that was monarchy, and clearly monarchy is not what we have. But then, for all intents and purposes, the president is like a temporary king. And here's the big question. Do we want to have faithlessness when it comes to who we elect or how our election process is administered and overseen and officiated. If so, if we're comfortable with that, if we're okay with that, if it doesn't move the needle at all for us, maybe just maybe we're in a similar kind of position to King Louis Thirteenth in The Three Musketeers. Not all that invested in the business related to his queen, except as pertains to his own vanity. 
not really attending to her, not really taking care of her, not really paying attention, just as long as he is not publicly embarrassed, disrespected. Is that where we're at as well with regards to our interests, our affairs, our business is in some measure all wrapped up in who represents us in the civil authorities sphere, who represents us in the ecclesiological sphere, in some sense, who represents us in those spheres of authority is indicative of how we are exercising authority in the home, in our families. Are we taking seriously how our individual private contributions with our families, with our homes, in our communities fit into matters of state, affairs of state, the business of the church? It's something to think about. It's something to consider, particularly as we do have people who want to scale up schemes predicated on good intentions, just because it doesn't look like the Ancien Regime, just because it doesn't necessarily look like the Roman Catholic Church. That doesn't mean that human nature is in suspense, deferred, delayed, no longer active. The key component in the political intrigues of the 17th century in France, the key component was not Roman Catholicism first and foremost, or monarchy first and foremost. The key component was man's nature, vanity, selfish ambition, or apathy, as the case may be. We still need to be on guard about those things today That's all the time I've got for this episode. I got to run. Do check out The Three Musketeers. It's a great work of fiction, historical fiction. Very interesting. Very well written. I plan on following up with some sequels by Alexandre Dumas after, of course, I get through The Conservative Mind from Burke to Elliot by Russell Kirk, which I have just started. I'm very much enjoying. More on that. More to come as I finish it. Hit subscribe if you haven't yet. Share this with somebody you think would find it interesting, enjoyable, entertaining, encouraging. But as always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com.